0: Activia helps support a healthy gut. Your gut is where it all begins. Leia Healthcare. Looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.
1: Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, it's hard to believe, but September is only days away. After the strangest of summers, it can only mean one thing. It's back to school. With COVID and the summer that's been, people are concerned, people are anxious, people are worried, and it's a nerve-wracking time generally, not just for those going back to school, but for everyone around the country in general. It's incredibly nerve-wracking. So with the return of school, what will that mean? How will that look? How will schools adapt to the new norm? To help answer all of the questions and more, I've turned to Ireland's favourite GP to join me on this week's show, Dr. Matthew O'Toole. Welcome to Real Health. Thanks for having me, guys. So let's chat about you as a GP first and foremost. What are you seeing over the course of the last couple of weeks and months, and how has it been?
0: Yeah, so I suppose since like lockdown, the lockdown measures were reversed, which are about six to eight weeks ago at this stage, we went from a stage when we were at the height of lockdown where we were saying, you know, there would be several days that would go by where we wouldn't see anybody with through like symptoms whatsoever. We would refer nobody on. And then I suppose since the lockdown restrictions were reversed, we're seeing a gradual increase in the number of people we're having to refer on. Um, we're not quite near where we were in April, but it's, it's increasing week on week. Um, and, you know, we're certainly kind of, I can say we're at the start of a second cycle. Um, I don't know what that cycle will look like, whether it's going to be a wave or a ripple, but we're definitely seeing, as I said, a, a gradual increase in cases week on week.
1: And are you seeing an increase in people who are anxious, who are worried, who are concerned about, I suppose, the future and how the future is going to look?
0: Yes, this was... One thing that is defined COVID for me is there's been an explosion of, of mental health really in Ireland when it comes to COVID. So uh, I use the term COVID-related anxiety, but we have a huge number of people to contact us um, who are anxious about getting COVID, who are anxious that one of their relatives might get COVID, uh, and people whose mental health has deteriorated because of not really COVID, but the, the way that their lives have changed so completely. So I know we're here, you know, working from home is great, but actually I have a load of people who are my generation in their 30s and 40s, who their their social contacts have reduced significantly since COVID. They're now working from home. Um, I didn't appreciate how important uh, coffee breaks with your mates and lunch with your colleagues actually is. And when you take away that structure, it, it's, it is having a huge impact on people's mental health. Um, and one of the key things with COVID and, and what we're hearing constantly is we need to reduce our social contacts. That's really good for COVID but it's really bad for your mental health. So I would say, along with the increase in cases we're seeing of COVID, we're seeing a, an associated increase in cases of people contacting us with anxiety. And that's just getting higher and higher and higher.
1: And one of the concerns I generally seems to be the health system and its ability to cope, its ability to turn around testing and testing timing. What's your take on that uh, over the course, initially, but also over the course of the last couple of weeks and months?
0: So I suppose that's one of the most important messages and one of the things I think was sometimes lost across the communication from the government in terms of uh, one of the things that really annoys me is when people give out about the fact that we seem to be locking down harder than our EU counterparts or that we're bringing in, you know, much stricter measures than our EU counterparts. The reason we have to do that here in Ireland is because our health service has such a poor capacity already. So we went into this with the worst waiting list in Europe, the lowest number of consultants, um, and the least capacity in in our health service when compared to every other EU country. Um, So, for example, just to put figures on it, like, Uh, Germany has five times the number of ICU beds that we have per 100,000 population. And and that's just a measure of of the huge amount of capacity that Germany has in terms of health service. So when the likes of Neffitt or Ronan Gain are making a decision in terms of where we need to go when the, the cases are escalating, they're not only purely looking at the the, the crude figures, the number of cases, they're actually having to take into consideration the fact that we have literally no capacity. We have the the lowest number of ICU beds per capita in, in the EU. And that's why we always seem to be having to bring in restrictive measures, worse measures than our EU counterparts. It's because basically our measures are out of line with the rest of the EU, but it's because our health service is equally out of line with the rest of the EU. And I think when people understand that, that we're different and we have to lock down harder because we just don't have the capacity within the health system. Um, In in terms of how the health system coped, I suppose during the first wave, it coped really, really well. But you have to think of the fact that we took over the entire private system and we canceled everything that wasn't COVID. Um, And that was okay to do during the first wave, but we can't continuously do that. We have a situation now where we have over 800,000 people on waiting lists. The capacity within the health service to deal with non-COVID issues is reduced between 30 and 50%. So we're just not in a good place at the moment because of our capacity, but also because of the the years and years of of chronic underfunding. In terms of where we are at the moment, in terms of testing and and, and tracing, um, it it kind of wanes, it waxes and wanes. This week is a good week. So what we're seeing from my colleagues is that most people are able to get a test and be contact traced within about 2.8 days. Last week it was 3.8 days, but the big caveat with that is the system isn't under pressure at the moment. So we have a capacity for 100,000 tests one or two days last week, we did see spikes in the number of tests we did. But really, it'll be September, October before we really know what, this, what the capability of the system is to, to test and trace. But at the moment, things are good.
1: And looking to the future, do you think that the system is going to be able to handle, if we do get a second wave, that quantity of testing that we required to get people tested properly and quickly?
0: So uh, I suppose they're telling us that we do. Um, so they're telling us that they have the capacity for us to do 100,000 tests a week, which would be pretty good for a country of our size. And they're telling us that now, compared to the last time, that we actually will be able to contact trace equally effectively. So. During the first cycle or wave, what we saw was we actually kind of got the testing bit okay, but basically it took weeks to get people contact traced, which is useless. So it's like identifying a case and then doing nothing about it. So this time around, they're telling us that they have the capacity in place, not only to test, but to contact trace. And I'm hoping they're right, because we can't afford to get that wrong a second time. Because again, what makes this time different from the last time is we've kind of started functioning as a society again we're opening up the schools, Uh, you know, we're trying to get back to workplaces. So the first cycle was fine because everybody was essentially housebound and contact tracing wasn't that important because we were all staying indoors. But this time around, the contact tracing is going to be key because if you're going to keep kind of opening up society and getting on as normal, that second bit, which is contacting everybody that has been in contact with a positive case becomes really important. So I wish I could answer the question definitively, but we'll definitely know in about four weeks.
1: What's your take on lockdown and the three counties and now Kildare obviously on their own? Is that the way forward? Should the country as a whole be going into lockdown or should it be individual the way it is now?
0: So my preference would be that we'd adopt a different approach. So what we've decided to do as a country is to just accept that COVID will be here and we're going to live alongside it for the foreseeable future, possibly forever. Um, I don't agree with that and I've several colleagues and it has to be said that most of our eminent infectious disease consultants like Paddy Mallon or... Um, Sam McConkie and our public health consultants like Anthony Staines all disagree with this policy because what they're saying is because the government has decided that we need to live with the virus like it's very simple what happens in any pandemic is two things the cases go up and you have the only way you can bring cases up is to bring in lockdown measures or restrictive measures. So what the future looks like for Ireland at the moment is we will see peaks and troughs in cases. And every time we get a spike, we'll have to bring in measures of some sort. Now, the most extreme measures are lockdown. Um, and, you know, but we will basically have to live with restrictions of some sort until we get a vaccine or a treatment. And then we will have episodic, more severe restrictions, which, you know, at the moment, it looks like Kildare is a lockdown. I don't think that's a way for us as a society to live, and I think it's going to cause huge problems economically. My own preference would be that we'd adopt approach like New Zealand or Australia, which has worked. I know they're criticising it at the moment and saying, oh, you know, there was an outbreak in Auckland. There was an outbreak in Auckland because people didn't comply with the rules and they actually escaped quarantine. We know that that's what happened. So actually, the fact that someone managed to break through quarantine in Auckland and led to an outbreak proves that the zero COVID policy that they had in Auckland is the way to go. And if you think of it, like I have mates who moved to Auckland and and to work as doctors, they had 100 days of total normality, no masks, schools opened, no restrictions. And that was incredible. And I just think that as a country, we need to be more ambitious and aim for that. Because if we don't, as I said, what the future holds for us all is spikes and restrictive measures and maybe lockdowns. In terms of Leash, Offaly, Kildare, I think it was appropriate. I think the fact that we saw... An upward trending in the number of cases in and Offaly, once the lockdown measures were brought in that reduced significantly. Um, so that we know that the lockdown measures work. It was appropriate at that time, but going forward, repeatedly locking down individual counties or, or, or the entire country as a whole, I think is going to cause damage economically um, and, and you know more so. So at the moment, the only thing we can do is lockdown. I just think we need to be more ambitious.
1: One of the key components of lockdown and and contact tracing and managing COVID generally is adherence. And obviously, people need to be led by the front with with regards to that that adherence. And it would be rude and uh, not the right thing not to bring up Golfgate if you like. Yeah. Because people now see that, well, you know, they didn't adhere, so why should we? And that's genuinely going to cause a huge adherence issue. I've heard people talk, about my friends have talked about it already have been in shops You're talking to people who aren't wearing masks and they say oh well you know the guys up, up in and they didn't have to do it so I'm not going to wear one yeah and that's definitely yeah. that's definitely a really big problem now going forward that adherence component is going to be very challenging.
0: Yeah look I think it was obviously really disappointing in terms of what I read from Golfgate because I think one of the things that's lacking in this second cycle is clear communication like if you were to ask me what is the plan or the strategy for going forward? There is none. I don't know what that plan is. So it's true. Like if you compare the first cycle or the first wave, it was really, really clear what we had to do. So we all had to do our bit to flatten the curve to get through that first wave. So everybody kind of bought into that. It was really clear what we had to do. There was kind of this sense of togetherness and a sense of purpose that if we all did our bit, adhere to the rules, we'd flatten the curve. We were getting weekly updates on how we were effectively flattening the curves. There was huge buy-in. If you compare what's happening now, I think there's much less buy-in from the public. I think the messaging is all over the shop. I still would struggle with some of the guidelines at the moment. Like we have guidelines and then lists three times longer than that with exemptions to the guidelines, which makes no sense. Um, and then we have this complete lack of leadership. So again, if you compare the first cycle, there were kind of two or three voices. You had uh, Tony, Simon, and Leo consistently coming out with the same message. Like what we had last week was one minister come out and say one well, thing and then another department to counteract them or contradict them completely followed by another department that contradict the first two and that just doesn't instill confidence at all um so the communication at the moment is a bit of a mess and then we ended with you know the revelations i suppose that those who are in office those who are supposed to show you know lead by example really broke all the rules in the book and my concern with that would be that, you know, if I was uh, planning to have a house party on Saturday or Sunday, I can listen to Ronan Glynn, who I think has been incredible, who will tell me repeatedly that I shouldn't have a house party, I shouldn't have people over. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to follow this guy and do what he says. And then it comes, you know, it turns out that those who are in high political office are basically breaking all the rules. It It doesn't instill confidence and it is a cause for concern. The other thing I would say with that though is that what we're seeing a huge amount of now is this kind of judgment. So the Berlin Bar two weeks ago, like there was a huge visceral reaction to that. Like I hadn't seen anger like that before. I think every single patient I saw last week mentioned it. It was just all over the place in terms of the degree of anger. And I think that as a country, we need to balance the, you know... The anger and acknowledging the fact that what happened was wrong, certainly the pandemic, but also balancing that with the fact that those people were human—that we all make errors. I made errors in the past that I regret. That I'm sure that everyone that was there regrets it. Um, because if we get to a stage where that level of kind of visceral judgment gets to the stage where it would actually be a disincentive to get testing, that's a problem. So what I saw last week, which is the first time I've really seen that since the start of the pandemic, was people in their late twenties and early thirties—they were kind of slow to contact me looking for testing. And what they were saying was that they had been to a house party over the weekend, that you know, they weren't necessarily out in the Berlin bar, but they were worried that I was gonna ask them you know, were they out over the weekend? And they were. So so because one of the messages I was kind of concentrating to get out is that like as a GP, I really don't care if you were literally hanging from the rafters in the Berlin Bar last weekend what I do care about is you ha- if you have symptoms, you need to come forward. And that's important because if we get to a stage where people who are you know under the age of 45, who are the ones at the moment actively spreading COVID-19 and or who make up the majority of the numbers, if they're concerned about getting tested because they'll be judged, then we have an even bigger problem. So I, I think we've two issues at the moment. We've that fear of judgment, which is a society we're responsible for, given the response we had to Berlin, the Berlin Bar, but also a continued absence of leadership and communication. And the events of last week were disappointing. And my concern would be that they'll continue to erode this national effort that we've put in.
1: And do you think that I suppose that younger population and they're being vilified by the older population now because they Completely. aren't adhering to rules, but part of the issue, like you're saying, is communication. They're just they're not they're not aware of the of the rules because they're too confusing. No one really mm. th- th- seems to have a clue what's going on. The whole tagline of are mm. flattening the curve that's everyone bought into that young and old and wherever can remember yeah. vividly we all bought in behind it and it was all about being you know one patriotic and flattening the curve but part of the issue with with the younger generation is they love no one to lead them they're not watching the nine o'clock news they're not watching all the, the yeah. all the updates they're leaderless
0: at the minute completely yeah and, and that's something that that i have found frustrating so if you look at the approach they've taken in australia it's been completely different so The the majority of cases in Ireland are in those under the age of 45. That's not unique to Ireland. It's actually what we're seeing across the world. So the second cycle is very different from the first one, because those that are over the age of 45 are still worried, they're concerned, some of them are still cocooning. But under the age of 45, we've kind of let ourselves go and stopped adhering to the rules generally, which is why the vast majority of the cases are in that age group. But what we're seeing in Australia is that they've totally channeled all the communication information towards that age group. So they've done really good, intelligent ads that focus all the attention on the under 45-year-old age group. Um, if you look at where the government at the moment has channeled all their information, it's Morning Ireland. It's the news. It's you know the 6-1 news, the, the 9 o'clock news. There are these constant press press briefings in the Department of Health. Nobody under the age of 45 is watching those. Um, they're listening to Today FM. They're listening to spin and they're, you know, they're interacting with social media they're much less likely to sit down and watch the news and we're not channeling our energies towards that at all we're still following the Morning Ireland's like it's great to hear Morning Ireland it's great to hear Ronan Gain at 7 o'clock on Morning Ireland telling people that they should behave but he's kind of preaching to the converted there what he needs to be doing is focusing his energies on the other forms of social media um, which those under the age of 45 are more likely to engage with but also you know ads the ads we're having at the moment on the television they're effective but if you see the ones that are in Australia they're, they're very much they're, they're better fun but they're, they're, they're are more likely to grab the attention of those that are causing issues at the moment so i think you're right i think the focus at the moment is is still on those over the age of 45 and the message just isn't resonating with those under 45 at all
1: yeah i think we can we, we can second that as, as a show and as a podcast so in the very first round of covid we put an uh, an interview question for simon harris we had it back within two days he was on the show yeah. telling us yeah. his message and i follow him on social media and like about an hour after us he was on spin he was on yeah. every, he was on at uh, two of them, breakfast with Darren and and He was on every single show. We have also put requests in for T- Dr. Tony Houlin and for Dr. Ronan Lynn, and neither of which have managed to come on the show yet. So I think that's a, it's a, it's a fair point. Speaking of communication, uh, now we're heading into schools and schools opening. Mm-hmm. And I think people, I see it with my own clients. I see it with my own friends. I think people are equally as confused with regards to what's coming on Thursday or on Monday or whatever day the schools are opening um bar the, the communication seems to be very mixed messaging
0: yeah so look i think that what really kind of a point that really reinforces this so if you look at what happened with school buses so um again just what i'm seeing in my practice people were kind of like okay i get that they're going to be socially distance in the classrooms i get they're going to have to wear masks but like i'm being advised not to use public transport yet i'm going to have to drop my kid off to the bus station to get the bus and what's going to happen there. And we were kind of told, look, it'll be fine. Don't worry about that. And then last week they said, actually, do you know what? We're actually going to socially distance them on the buses as well. And again, that was totally last minute. It was obviously very last minute. That just doesn't inspire confidence. So again, the the problem that I see with the schools are is nobody's actually sat down and outlined exactly what the guidelines for the schools are. So what we're being told uh, is that the schools have been given very clear guidelines But actually, nobody sat down and told the people of Ireland what they are. So at the moment, uh, what I'm hearing on the ground from patients, like we're seeing a lot of kids who have underlying medical conditions and teachers that have underlying medical conditions come in to us because they're really worried because they aren't fully convinced that the situation that they're going to be faced with is safe. Uh, I have to say I have a huge amount of respect for the Minister for Health but the comparing of going back to schools with, with with you know, getting in the back of a car and jumping on a trampoline probably wasn't the most helpful thing to do um, and again, led to more confusion than clarity. Um, but at the moment I understand what the guidelines for schools are because I've read them but I really feel that there should be a concerted effort to explain them and I don't think it would be that hard to send out a one pager or even a booklet to every parent in the country so that they can be clear in their own minds what the guidelines are when it comes to the return to school Um, because there are huge efforts being made to make it safe uh, and to make it work but that hasn't again resonated with the the, the parents in Ireland they just they haven't understood that and I don't feel like they're fully on board because they don't understand it. You're listening
1: to Real Health with me Carl Henry in association with Leia Healthcare. And there
0: seems, just from what
1: I'm I'm looking at and what I'm hearing, there almost seems to be uh, an underlying movement now of parents who aren't sending their children back to school over the next couple of weeks. Do you think that opinion or that, that train of thought is justified?
0: So no, I suppose, I mean, we're getting, as kind of next Monday comes closer, we're getting more and more and more requests into our practice from parents saying, I've decided I'm going to take my kids out of school and homeschool them. And that's, I've never experienced that before. Like we're getting, you know, many, many requests uh, from parents uh, saying that. And I think, look, the advice is we need to judge every case on a case-by-case basis. But I think every other country in the EU has managed to do this. Uh, and I don't think Ireland should be any different. I think, to be honest, we need to get our kids back to school because, you know, again, one of the fallouts in this pandemic will be the non-COVID related issues. So whether that's in our health service, the explosion, mental health, the fact that cancer screening still hasn't started back fully, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage on the health service. But I think also from the educational system, I've seen kids in my practice that have autism that have been out of their you know, services for the last five or six months, they have regressed dramatically. Um, and we can't allow COVID to continue to hamper our children in terms of you know their progression, their education. So we need to, as a nation, grasp that thorn and go back to school. And what we're lucky in Ireland is that the vast majority of countries in the EU have done this and have done it relatively successfully, with a few exceptions. So I think as a nation we need to get behind the schools. So what makes the schools different from testing and tracing is that we actually can put our faith in the teachers and every school, we know who they are. And I, 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 have, I, I believe strongly that the teachers of Ireland, that they'll get behind this and they'll do their very, very best to make sure that schools are the safest possible environments for children. So what I'm telling parents at the moment is that we just need to put our faith in the system. We can't allow children to stay out of school any longer whether teaching kids at school or homeschooling is a good idea. Again, like teachers have gone to, to, to college for multiple years to do what they're doing. I don't think that I, uh, as, a, as a doctor, could, I don't have children, but I don't think I could replace them. Um, so I think on a, on a short-term basis, or even on a long-term basis, I don't think it's a viable option. I think we need to go with the system. Do you think we're going to see a spike in cases when schools do reopen? Yeah, undoubtedly. Um, we absolutely will. So I suppose the, the, the science behind this is changing all the time. And that's what's really frustrating about COVID because in February, I could have sworn blind that you know asymptomatic transmission wasn't a thing. Now we know it is. So a lot of what I said three or four months ago is totally untrue. But the body of evidence at the moment would suggest that kids under the age of 10 don't transmit it as effectively as kids over the age of 10, and they don't seem to become as unwell with it. So the majority of them seem to have no symptoms whatsoever and don't transmit it. But in the age group over the age of 10, they transmit it as effectively as you and I, and they also get equally symptomatic. So I think what we'll see is the primary schools, and, and this is based on what we're seeing across Europe as well, is that primary schools, by and large, will be relatively okay, um, but I think we will see clusters in secondary schools. So again, the traditional Irish primary school is much smaller than the secondary schools. So there's a lot of a lot of things in the, in the favour of the primary schools in terms of their size and the fact that the kids don't transmit it as effectively as those over the age of ten. I think the secondary schools will be different, and I think we will. I was going to say the Tawnist yes the Tawnist Leo Varadkar came out and said that we will see clusters in schools secondary schools and the question is how many and how they'll be controlled so if you look at Israel what happened in Israel was there was a, a large increase in cases when the schools went back there Um, But in in cases like Germany, for example, uh, if you use Berlin as an example, there were some clusters, but in 95% of cases, things were fine. So I think we need to accept that we'll see clusters um, and we need to have faith in public health that we'll be able to control those and and, and, and contact trace them effectively. But I don't think that we'll see the significant surge in cases that we believe we would three months ago.
1: One question that I have for you, and I think, it, again, it comes back to communication, which is a, 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 a concurring theme as we chat more and more, the communication tool is, is crucial, is that control component. So loads of people who I know, when I told them I was going to be chatting to yourself, ask me you to ask you this, what happens if there is hmm. if a child in a classroom tests positive? What's the control and how does that look? Does the whole household have to go into isolation for two weeks? Does the whole household get tested? What way are they going to manage that if a case appears in a classroom? Yep.
0: So the, the HC has actually provided GPs with guidelines uh, this week in terms of how we're to assess a whole lot of different situations when it comes to children under the age of 13. And households will be provided with those in the coming days. So GPs have been given a copy in advance so that we can familiarise ourselves with them. I think the big differentiator at the moment basically is, is children over the age of 13 are assumed uh, are treated as adults under these guidelines, whereas children under the age of 13, uh, we've now got a, a huge amount of clarification terms of what we should do. So the first thing to say is in the past, children were sent to school if they had a runny nose, if they had a cough, if they had a fever, that is no longer okay to do. Um, And basically what the guidelines say, the first thing is, if your child is otherwise well, but just has a runny nose and is sneezing, no cough, no temperature and no other symptoms, then the answer to that question is that, yes, that child can go to school if all they have is a runny nose and they're sneezing. Uh, And that's made under the assumption that everyone else in the house is well and that that child hasn't been in contact with him with COVID-19. If your child then is, is what the HC defines as mildly unwell, so has a temperature that's under 38 degrees, uh, doesn't need paracetamol and nurofen, and they have no other symptoms of COVID-19, so they don't have a cough, they don't have shortness of breath. I suppose this is the group that traditionally would have been sent to school anyway. The advice now is, is very clear, uh, and those children can no longer go to school, so they need to be kept at home until their symptoms have resolved for 48 hours. And I think that's what's going to be the big difference this winter, in that these children who are a little bit unwell Uh, who in the past we would have sent to school will now have to stay at home for at least 48 hours until their symptoms are resolved. And that means that mom or dad are going to have to stay at home with them as well. And again, that's under the assumption that everyone else in the house as well and that no one else has COVID-19. If a child then develops symptoms which could be in keeping with COVID-19, which is a cough or a fever above 38 degrees or a loss or a, a change in their sense of smell or taste, then they need to contact their doctor and they need to stay at home. So if children develop symptoms which could be in keeping with COVID or a temperature above 38, then the the child needs to be uh, seen by or or assessed by a GP. Uh, I think the other thing that's going to cause significant disruption is that if there is a member of the household that is either being tested for COVID-19, so if the child is being tested for COVID-19, then every member of that household needs to limit their movements. If that COVID result is positive, then everybody in the house is assumed to be a close contact. And what that means is we'll need to have testing on days zero and 10. So again, what that means is we're going to be in for a winter of, you know, a large amount of of disruption. Um, I think in terms of the, the the case that you described. So if a child um, is sent home from school, so let's say there's a child in a class who is sent home from school with a cough or a fever, that child will obviously be sent home, and that child will be assessed by their GP to see whether they have COVID nineteen or not. So the child will be sent forward for testing. That doesn't mean that everybody else the child has been in contact with in that class needs to be sent home too and um, what will happen is uh, the, the child if the child tests negative for COVID-19 the child will be able to return back to school 48 hours after their symptoms are resolved if the child has is positive so if the child that was sent home does have COVID-19 then what happens is uh, the school and they will start to do contact tracing uh, and what may happen in that situation is that the children within that school classified as as close contacts and may have to have COVID tests. So the guidelines are complex in that children that previously, I think children were sent to school if they had a runny nose, if they had a cough, if they had a fever, that is no longer okay to do. Um, un- until their symptoms resolved or 48 hours late. And I think we need to be really honest with parents and say to them that we are looking at a winter of disruption uh, because children will be sent home from school. And when children are sent home from school, parents will obviously have to take time off to look after them. And also the close contacts of the household and contacts of those children will have to limit their movements. We are looking for we are looking at a, 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 a winter of severe disruption and parents are going to have to brace themselves for taking a significant amount of time off.
1: And of course, we combine that with winter flu season, which is a, a, a phenomenally busy time for GPs and for the country as a whole and for the hospital system. Is there a concern amongst medics and GPs of just how, uh, how, uh, w- in concern of what that's going to do to the health system in conjunction with COVID? That the two together are really going to put the health system under a huge amount of pressure?
0: Yeah. So I suppose, look, you can't clinically distinguish flu and COVID, so you can't. As a doctor, if you came in to me you have symptoms of the flu. It is really indistinguishable from COVID unless you're on the more severe end of the spectrum with COVID and your oxygen levels start to plummet. But symptoms present very similarly. You have cough, you can have shortness to breath and you have all of those flu-like symptoms. So the only way you can differentiate influenza and COVID is to test somebody. And um, so basically this winter, every case of influenza is going to be presumed COVID until proven otherwise by a test. Um, so that in itself is a huge change in, 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 in mindset for us. Um, normally what happens in Ireland come the middle of October, we see a, a steady increase in the number of influenza cases. And associated with that, a steady increase in the number of trolleys. So, you know, we, we have hundreds of trolleys and they tend to peak one or two weeks into January where we have six, six 700 people on trolleys. We, we can't allow that to happen this year because trolleys are the perfect vectors for transmitting COVID. So we always... Every winter in Ireland, unlike our counterparts in the EU, where they don't have trolleys, we don't have the capacity to deal with the surge in cases, whatever those cases are. Other countries in the EU do. So the way we we handle those surges in cases is we just put them all on trolleys and we shut services down. So we shut routine operations. We shut down other services that were, that are presumed not as important. So, for example, elective, I hate that term, but scheduled care is just parked for a few weeks. So that's the way we've handled influenza always. We've never had a situation whereby we're going to have influenza and COVID-19. So we're going to be put under more pressure than we ever have before. One of the things we're trying to, do to mitigate that is to dramatically increase the number of people that are covered with the flu vaccine, which I think will help. But I think either way, the health service is going to be put under severe, enormous pressure this year, because every year, I wouldn't say it falls apart, but it does come to a grinding halt with the flu. Um, and I, I think it, it will. it's inevitable that the same will happen this year with the flu and with COVID, but I think things may get potentially worse. So for me, to be honest, I'm anxious, stressed and nervous, and I think all of my colleagues are.
1: That was my final question. On a personal level, how are you handling the last few months but also how you how you are forecasting the future what kind of pressure is that putting you under on a personal level and also the fact that you've become almost a a national celebrity in some respects your social media profile has grown massively over the course of the last couple of months because you are a very good communicator who calls it very much as it is and do you find that brings pressure with it
0: yeah well i suppose like the, the biggest thing that i've experienced is uh exhaustion to be honest and all of my colleagues have felt the exact same so uh, March and April were incredibly difficult times because we were we were sitting here in Ireland and we were watching what was happening to our colleagues in Italy and that was like that was the scariest thing as a doctor you could ever see so we were hearing from our colleagues in Italy that they were having to make decisions in terms of you know who who got the ventilator and who didn't um you know their health system was completely overwhelmed and a lot of the a lot of their colleagues in Italy died of covid so we were sitting here like sitting ducks basically waiting for covid to hit Ireland and expecting that we would the same horrific scenes that the guys had experienced in Italy. We were really lucky in that we got our act together and actually that never happened. Um, We had a very busy and difficult March in April, but we didn't experience what they experienced in Italy or anything near it. Um, But what has happened is once the number of COVID cases started to reduce... All of that non-COVID work that was paused for three or four months, we had to start dealing with. And the month of July and August had been the busiest ever. So normally July and August are quiet. There's very little viral infections moving around. People are on holidays. And doctors, whether they're GPs or, or hospital doctors, they're kind of the, the the time we take to recharge our batteries before we get into the flu season. We haven't had that break this year. Uh, and this year is going to be like, from a general practice perspective, a year like no other, because we're going to have to vaccinate on top of everything else, 800,000 more children. Um, so that there are going to be huge pressures on us on top of the pressures that we would normally face. So when I talk to my colleagues, whether it's my nursing the nursing staff that I work with in the practice or my colleagues who are doctors in the hospitals, they're just all wrecked. They're all exhausted. Um, and they're not fully recharged Uh, and ready to deal with what they're going to face. And I'm not saying we're quite back to where we were in March or April, but that kind of sense of anxiety is starting to creep in again. And we don't know what the future holds for us. That uncertainty isn't something that sits well with us. And we don't know if, firstly, we we'll be able to cope with the pressures that we're facing. Uh, And again, because there's no clear plan I don't know whether this is going to be the future, that, that, which this is my future for, for two, three, four or five years. It probably is. Um, but they've been really difficult circumstances to work under. And I suppose the most difficult thing for me has been to see colleagues get sick with COVID, uh, some of which are still out sick with COVID and have been left with long-term issues. Uh, so that's been very difficult to see. I suppose on, on a personal level, um, it's been difficult um, in that I'm very frustrated. So I suppose uh, initially I... I suppose, was was starting to speak out about my concerns in terms of what was going to happen. Uh, I suppose now I'm kind of getting more and more frustrated uh, in that, I suppose, as a medical community, we will always get behind the government when it comes to public health measures. And I, like Ronan Glen will always have my full support. I think he's an incredible leader. Um, but I think the last two weeks have been really challenging for me personally, but also for my profession. Because we've been backing, rolling, Glenn to the hilt, but I kind of feel like, in some ways, we have been let down by the structures around us. Because we're doing our best to get the public on side, get the message across, whether it's through the wearing of masks or you know the myriad of other things that we've had to get the public on board for. And I think, to be fair, the medical profession, and Glenn, the nursing profession have been really consistent. The messaging has been clear, and we've done a really good job. I feel like, in some ways, because we don't have that clear structure, the clear leadership, the clear communication it's just a sense of frustration like at the moment i would describe myself and i think my colleagues would describe myself the same way as just kind of very frustrated um at, at what situations as it's evolving because i feel we've done our best to get the public on board and to get the message across but that other aspects that we have no control over it's kind of letting us down
1: i think if there's one word to sum up the interview it's very much communication uh, you are particularly good at that. Uh, the sign of a good interview is when your producer is screaming in your ear to wrap the interview. <laughs> Cut it. And we're still going. <laughs> I know, sorry. No, it, it's a sign of a fantastic interview. You look at the <laughs> clock as we normally wrap around half an hour and you look at the clock and it's gone and you're like, where did that half an hour go? And I'm sure listeners are going to and viewers will feel the very same thing. If people want to find out uh, more about you or follow you, give us your handles on your, your
0: details. <laughs> so my handle on Twitter is Dr. Zero cracked There's a whole story behind <laughs> that. But basically it's because Every time that I talk, I just tell people how bad it's going to be and how they ha- can't have any fun. So, yeah, it's at, at Dr. Zero Crack on Twitter. <laughs>
1: Dr. Matthew O'Toole, thank you so much for joining us on Real Health today. A fascinating insight from someone who's very much at the front line and very passionate about COVID and the, the nation. And fingers crossed the months ahead won't be as challenging as we expect that they possibly will. Folks, that's it for another episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. It's a powerful, ep- powerful message, but please do follow the public guidelines by washing your hands and wearing a mask and social distancing. is absolutely crucial going forward. As ever, you know where we are. We're realhealth at, independent.ie, at Henry PT on Twitter and on Instagram. And as always, don't forget to rate. And review. Have a fantastic week, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.
0: Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.